this would be for people that are potentially interested in pursuing orthopedics that you need to be incredibly strong or a jock to, to be able to do ortho. Not entirely true. You definitely have to have some strength to do orthopedics, but a lot of it is more technique rather than brute strength. And it's having a good team that surrounds you. So I would refute that as a requirement to go into orthopedics. So for any women or you know other potential candidates that that would be dissuading them from going into orthopedics, that's definitely a myth. Hi, everyone, and welcome to season two, episode three of The Breakdown with Rothman Orthopedics. I'm your host, Alex Hammond, and in the field of orthopedics, we know there are some common myths that have stood the test of time. So to help debunk some of those questionable myths and statements, I'll speak with Rothman specialist, Dr. Megan Bishop, a sports medicine surgeon, Dr. Michael Hawks, trauma and fracture care surgeon, and Dr. Arjun Saxena, joint replacement surgeon. So I'd like to welcome in Dr. Michael Hawks. He is orthopedic trauma and fracture care and also serves as the orthopedic trauma medical director of the Advent Health Central Florida Division. Dr. Megan Bishop, she's a sports medicine surgeon specializing in sports-related injuries of the knee, shoulder, and elbow. And Dr. Arjun Saxena, joint replacement surgeon specializing in primary and revision hip and knee arthroplasty. So I want to thank you all for joining me. And as always, I'd love for each of you just to kind of set the scene and briefly tell your story how you ended up at Rothman and maybe specifically go into a little bit of your subspecialty as well. Uh, great, I can start. Thank you, Alex, for uh, having uh, me on. This is my first podcast ever, so I hope it goes well or reasonably. Well, um, we, we love it already. There you go. We got to break you in somehow. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I, I do uh, uh, trauma. That was, I did a fellowship in uh, orthopedic traumatology in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And then for the last 13 years, been plugging it away in Orlando. If you see me, it's because you fell off a curb or got thrown off a of monkey bars or maybe something even worse uh, that has caused you to have a broken bone of some type that uh, needs to be addressed. And uh, we are happy to take care of you. I became part of Rothman here in the last year as Rothman moved down their subspecialty excellence of care to the Florida market. And uh, I saw an, a great opportunity to be part of something great. And so that's why I'm here. Well, thank you and welcome to Rothman Central Florida and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Dr. Bishop, how about you go? Um, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me again. Um, yes. I'm, again, I'm Megan Bishop. This is my second time on the podcast. I'm a sports medicine surgeon in Rothman in New York. So uh, we have our offices in in downtown Manhattan, as well as up in Westchester and Terrytown and Harrison. Um, I did my under uh, residency training at Rothman in Philly at Thomas Jefferson University. And then I did my fellowship in sports medicine at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. So been there uh, quite a few years now. Uh, we're quite underway, a little bit more so than Florida at this point. We've been in New York for about three years, particularly a special interest of mine. I, I mean, I take care of shoulder, elbow, knee, uh, all sorts of athletes, but I have a particular interest in treating female athletes. And I also see a lot of runners uh, just as a special interest as I'm a pretty big runner myself. I mean, I feel like this is a huge accomplishment, not necessarily has to do specifically with your career at Rothman and even just as a, as a physician, but you also, 
you know, you say you, you, you've ran, but what did you do last year? You competed in what? Because that's a big deal. I ran the Olympic trials for the marathon. Uh, and, then, and then I had a baby less than a year after. So it's been a busy, busy time for me. <laughs> <laughs> and you placed pretty high out of a lot. So congrats. I just thought, I think that's awesome. So <laughs> just wanted to share that. <laughs> Dr. Saxena. Hey, yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alex. So glad to be on here with um, Dr. Bishop and Dr. Hawks. Great to have you guys here at Rothman, too. So I am hip and knee replacement. I work in uh, Mercer and Bucks County. Our offices are actually all in Mercer County in this division. And uh, as well, as far as uh, being at Rothman, I like uh, Dr. Bishop. I had the opportunity to train at Rothman as well. And I'm very glad to be back here uh, working as an attending. So it's it's been a great experience. And my first Rothman podcast. So I'm very excited to see how it turns out. Yes. And we're happy to have you. And again, I, I thought it was equally important just to make sure specifically when we're talking about the, you know, the topic of today, just to kind of get three different perspectives, three different subspecialties specifically. So, uh, you know, like I mentioned, we are going to hopefully bust some common myths in orthopedic care. So, Today, we scanned the internet, which we all know is full of very reliable information. And we also kind of pulled our social media followers just for some common misconceptions that they've heard. And just, you know, our hopes for today is that, you know, the three of you can, you know, provide further insight of the myths. So what I'll do is kind of like read a statement out and feel free to kind of just jump in with your thoughts. Um, even if there's like a little bit of truth to it or it's completely false. These are just the things that people were just interested in. Again, curious, just coming from the three different um, subspecialties and hearing everyone's thoughts on that. So if we're all all good, then I'll just go ahead and we'll kind of jump right in. All right. So we'll start kind of very simple, kind of general orthopedic stuff right here. Knuckle cracking causes arthritis. Have you? So who has heard? Who has heard that? Or I'm sure, right? Is this a common one? Okay. Very common. So does it, does, does knuckle cracking cause arthritis? Your arthritis doctor want to take that one? <laughs> um, thanks, for, thanks for giving me that one, Dr. Hawks. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would go with no. I think, you know, our joints all make noises. Uh, if you, you squat down low enough, you know, you can have your knees uh, make a little crack and, and that's all normal. What exactly that is, I'm not sure. I, I've read some things that, it, it may be some gases like nitrogen being released or moved from the joint. I'm not 100% sure, but no, uh, cracking your knuckles, a cracking knee uh, will not cause arthritis. Sometimes when we do have joints that make noises, it, it can be something that uh, is a sign that we may have some early cartilage damage in our knees. But overall, cracking your joint does not mean you're going to give yourself arthritis. Okay. I'm actually glad to hear that because specifically there's times when I take yoga and I forgot the one move where you squat and then um, like every time it pops. So it's good to know. Ho hopefully there's nothing, <laughs> nothing serious going on there. Um, I would say when the cracking comes accompanied with pain, then maybe <laughs> that's a reason why you'd want to get checked out. But yeah, like, like you said, we see tons of patients that have like kneecaps clicking and things like that. That doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong. Uh, however, if it started coming with pain and swelling, then maybe you would want to get checked out at that point. Okay. All right. Good to know. As a dad of three, um, one of my kids' favorite things is to for me to crack their toe knuckles <laughs> on literally a nightly basis. And so I'm hoping it doesn't cause arthritis. <laughs> 
<laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Worst case scenario, I guess you'll be uh, flying up north to uh, see Dr. Saxena or Dr. Bishop on that then. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right. Next one. How about barefoot is the best way to walk? So meaning no shoes, just walking barefoot, especially around the house. I know I've kind of heard a few of our foot and ankle surgeons saying that they might, or even just, again, reading on the internet where they feel like people are just, you know, because of the pandemic, so they're not wearing shoes as often. So potentially there's could be an increase in that. So just in general, like, you know, obviously we're talking about the feet, but is walking barefoot good because it affects all your other areas as well you know alex i think this myth comes from like somebody wrote a book about shoe wear and running barefoot megan with your running background have you ever heard anything like this i mean i haven't really heard much about just walking around the house barefoot um but in terms of running barefoot i mean there are obviously some benefits to that we can think back to a couple maybe like five or ten years ago when those kind of running shoes that essentially like fit your toes uh, became popular to kind of simulate the barefoot running. Uh, it was a it was a pretty big fad, and there were actually a lot of injuries that came from that uh, for people. You know, lower extremity injuries, tendonitis. You can have more impact going through your joints. Uh, potentially, be a little bit higher risk for stress fracture and things like that. So, I generally don't recommend using those types of shoes uh, for runners. I, I think a little bit more stability, especially if you're doing more mileage, is beneficial. In terms of kind of just running, walking barefoot around the house. I mean, I, I don't think that's good, really good or bad. Um, I think that myth is probably, you know, something that doesn't mean too much either way. You know, there can be benefits to it. I think of like helping with like stabilizations of the small muscles in the feet and building strength walking barefoot. But in terms of like causing larger issues down the line, I don't think that would lead to anything. Okay. Does anyone else have anything to offer on that? Since we were kind of if not, I actually, just because we're on the subject of running and barefoot, and then immediately the next thing that comes to mind is running on the beach is the best surface to run on. Well, that's definitely false. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> running on the beach is kind of miserable. I'm sure everybody would admit to that. Um, I mean, you certainly- Walking on the beaches. They're, they're, yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. Uh, I mean- it, surface the surface isn't great um definitely can help lead to things like shin splints from changing surfaces too much um you could sprain an ankle you know achilles tendonitis things like that so i mean i think if you run on the hard pack sand uh that's not quite as bad but you know running on a slanted beach uh in in soft sand is just not that enjoyable and is you know a recipe for probably getting injured you know i'd have to add as a father of three that walking <laughs> Each with two beach chairs, one kid, six beach <laughs> Also, it's good for your health. Great workout, though. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> you know what, too, Alex, is that when you, you know, be down, being down here in Florida with the beach and with a lot of people outdoors and running all year long, about four or five years ago, it, it was really common to be able to treat, treat patients for lacerations of the plantar surface of their foot as well, because you know, they were getting crazy. They were, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of running without any real protection uh, underneath uh, their uh, pads or their feet. Uh, and uh, those types of injuries can be hard to recover from and to get back uh, to the things you really like to do if you're nursing a, a laceration of the bottom of your foot. Oh, all right. Dr. Bishop, as our resident runner, is there one, a surface that you would say is better to run on? I mean, it depends. Um, you know, softer surfaces 
obviously can be less impact on your joints, but I, I think it really depends on the person. I mean, I do all my miles on running on, you know, pavement in Central Park and I've been fine, but I mean, in people that are prone to injury, you might want to choose a softer surface, you know, dirt or some kind of a path um, or even on the track rather than running all on pavement. Okay. How about this one? If you can walk on it, then it's not broken or use it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's much, much to that myth either. I think that's also false. You can certainly have a broken bone uh, and it might not be displaced or it might not hurt that bad, uh, but continuing to uh, function and, and use the limb uh, would likely make the situation worse. I think that if you have injured yourself and you at, in any way suspect it to be something that's going to last a day or two longer than you wanted to, then I would probably see a physician to be able to do a appropriate clinical examination, x-rays, uh, make sure that you can get back out and do the things you want to do and not have to worry about uh, the long-term effects of uh, avoiding treatment and evaluation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with Dr. Hawks there, Alex. And, you know, we see this all the time that people have an injury and they think nothing of it and they show up a couple weeks later because they either had a tough time getting an appointment or they thought it was nothing. And and that's really part of the reason why we've established, you know, urgent cares in some of our markets. That's just a quick way to get, you know, evaluated. And, and we have x-ray machines in, in our offices and um, we can really, you know, kind of put these issues to bed or diagnose them if they're really issues um, pretty quickly for patients. So that's something uh, that we really try to offer the community. Yeah. I mean, I immediately just like, I think of, let's just talk football since we're kind of in, in the peak season right now, but like seeing, you know, there's nothing worse when you see like a player go down and then, you know, the announcer will say, Oh great. You know, they got off the field on their own weight and you know, that's great. And you're kind of feeling hopeful. And then you kind of find out like the next day, or even if they went back in and it's like, Oh, you know, they torn ACL, obviously it's not broken, but something is that kind of a similar thing too? like maybe with like knee injuries or is that kind of like the same thing just because I can walk on it doesn't mean it's not worse than I think it is? You know, I'm going to defer to Dr. Bishop, the sports <laughs> expert on this one, but I think the perfect example we have is right here in Philadelphia. You know, Carson Wentz tears his ACL and, and then goes and scores a touchdown. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the, the rest is history. But, you know, Megan, what do you see in the sports clinic? Yeah, I mean, I think Donovan McNabb did the same thing. I think he played a couple of plays after he tore his ACL as well. So, I mean, adrenaline does a lot uh, when mm -hmm. you're on the field. So it certainly can carry you through pain and be able to play through injury without really feeling it as much. But, you know, a lot of times after these ligament injuries and things like that in the knee, people can actually walk initially. Um, it becomes a little bit harder once the knee swells up um, later uh, after the injury. So, you know, just because you can see a player, you know, walk off the field doesn't necessarily mean they haven't done anything too bad, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, in, in terms of kind of the initial question about if it's broken, you know, can you walk on it or not? Uh, in terms of what I've seen a lot recently is with the New York City Marathon um, and a lot of runners running that, stress fractures are something that I think of too. And people, I actually saw a lady that ran the entire New York City Marathon with a femoral neck stress fracture and saw oh, me wow. three, days, three days after and having some groin pain for like a couple weeks leading up. And she was very lucky it didn't complete during the, the marathon. So you certainly can run on a fracture. Um, you know, if you are feeling those symptoms of like weight bearing pain, um, even pain at night, like when you're lying in bed, those are kind of signs that you definitely should get checked out and at least get an x-ray, if not an MRI. All right. Yeah. And uh, Alex, sometimes what, what we probably deserve some attention to are hand injuries. 
And mm. so, you know, for sure, you're not walking on your hands. And so you might just leave it alone if it looks a little bit red, a little bit uh, displaced or uh, a little deformed. And you say it's going to get better. It's just a jammed finger. But what can happen over time is that it might be an articular injury. It might be something where the, the joint of one of your fingers is broken and heals in an improper way. And the hand is a lot less forgiving than some of the other areas of your body when it comes to function. And so a lot of those structures around a broken bone, around a deformity can then become scarred area that would be very hard to correct and get back to full function. All right, great. Thank you for that. Um, next one, this one's a little bit targeted, so I'm, I'm sure the right person will know the answer to this, but, uh, Young people do not require total joint replacements. All right. I'm guessing that one was for me. Possibly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as, as a joint replacement surgeon, you know, what we do is we want to take people who have, you know, severe arthritis and allow their joints to function more normally. You know, a joint replacement's never going to be as good as your knee was when you were 30 or 40 years old. But if we can get people to walk without pain, that's ideal. Now, you're asking about young people and joint replacement. Um, the youngest joint replacement I've done, I believe, was a 28-year-old I did a hip replacement on. And so that sounds really young. Most of the majority of our patients um, are going to be, you know, over 60 or at least over 50. But you can get medical conditions or some people who are just really unfortunate to have some severe arthritis at an early age in people in their 30s or 40s. You know, one of the more commonly known ones is avascular necrosis of the hip. Um, and that's a condition in which the blood supply to the femoral head, the bottom part of your hip joint, but the ball part of the ball and socket joint dies. And when that blood supply dies, basically the bone sort of collapses and dies. And you end up with having this ball in this socket uh, to instead having this kind of amorphously shaped piece of bone that's not really healthy and is causing severe pain and dysfunction. So that's a condition that pretty commonly if someone's in their late 20s, early mm -hmm. 30s have it, we will do a hip replacement on a young person. And sometimes, you know, I, I actually have a patient who was 45 and just had horrible knee arthritis. He had had some trauma when he was younger to his knee and actually had some surgeries. And at some point, it becomes a quality of life issue. So right. no for those patients, they likely will need some type of revision or secondary procedure in the future. We want them to have quality of life now. And so it's reasonable to do a knee or a hip replacement in a younger person, and, and when I say younger, I mean someone in their 20s or 30s or 40s, if their arthritis is severe enough and it can help their quality of life. Actually, I kind of want to link the two. So when I think young and just kind of, again, just some things that I've heard, I, I automatically kind of think of like the young, the active crowd, the athletes. So Dr. Bishop, is there ever a time where potentially you'll see patients, again, if they're having any hip or knee issues that are so bad that you could potentially, you know, refer to... Um, a joint replacement specialist because it just may need to go that route. Have you had any of that experience or heard of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's different types of arthritis or cartilage injuries we see in patients. We could, I generally treat the more focal cartilage injuries that are, um, you know, only to a specific compartment of the knee or a smaller area. Those are patients that can generally sometimes be treated with cartilage restoration type procedures to get them back to function. Um, other things we look at, you know, if it's just on one side of their knee, occasionally we can perform something called like an osteotomy where we actually realign the knee joint to be a joint preservation type procedure. Mm -hmm. However, for patients that have more kind of diffuse arthritis throughout the whole knee, even in young patients, I, I would send them to an arthroplasty surgeon for evaluation. 
Awesome. Any anything, Dr. Hawks, um, you'd like to add to that or your experience or that you've seen kind of in the in the trauma in the uh, OR? Well, there have been some patients that had such a bad injury to one of their joints, even though they were very young, that we can treat with uh, surgery to realign the, the bone, but we can't really do too much with the cartilage damage. And so if that gets worse over time, patients may be too young, let's just say, for uh, you know, total knee or a total hip in, in some people's eyes, but certainly I would be uh, referring them on to someone like Dr. Saxena for uh, taking care of that pain and that dysfunction to get them back on the road. Awesome. Kind of want to stay in your wheelhouse, but so you have to have some sort of big fracture or car accident in order to be treated by a trauma and fracture care surgeon. And I guess kind of what I want to get from you is because immediately when I think of trauma, like I think it's got to be like the worst case scenario for them to end up. And like you said in the, in your intro, you were like, you could fall off a curb. So I guess I kind of debunked that myself, but if you can just kind of elaborate a little bit more of kind of what comes through your doors. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, a a lot of us as orthopedists take care of uh, patients, whether or not they're chronically or acutely injured uh, that have, that have sustained trauma in some way. That's, you know, it changed their life because of something that happened, right? And so um, patients uh, all the way from uh, just a, like I was just mentioning, just a small finger fracture all the way to a significant pelvis or, or, or a hip socket uh, fracture uh, may come through our doors. And uh, we, we treat all comers. And I would say that if you, uh, again, what I said before, if you have an injury, you're worried about it. If the best thing to do is, is see your physician, uh, get a good exam, get some x-rays, make sure that we're not, uh, you're not missing something and that we can take care of it. The, the worst thing you can do is not get something treated that could have improved your uh, long-term function. Great. All right. How about you only need to see an orthopedic specialist when you're hurt or there is an issue? Dr. Bishop, I'm think I'm going to probably toss this to you because I feel like so that is not that is not true. Okay. Um, you know, especially as a, a sports medicine doctor, uh, we, we generally, you know, with our non-operative sports medicine partners, kind of take care of you know the whole athlete and the whole person. So we'll frequently see people, you know, for performance type issues, uh, not necessarily just be an orthopedic injury, just kind of optimal performance, getting patients to be able to be themselves in, in their athletic performance and things like that. So I would say that that is false. I mean, I definitely see patients that kind of come in for social visits too, some older patients that just uh, <laughs> get their knees injected frequently for arthritis or something like that. And, you know, want to just check in every few months just to make sure they're headed on the, the right track with that. So, you know, you don't necessarily always have to have an orthopedic problem to come in. I think it's good to sometimes get just an overall evaluation of your health. And that can be done through either one of us or through one of our non-operative doctors as well. Dr. Hawkins, you're kind of like the complete opposite because you literally meet patients when, like, yeah, something bad has just happened for them, for sure. Right. Um, and usually they get to us by way of either, uh, you know, a trip to the ER or a, um, a a a cab ride to the ER, either in a ambulance or a helicopter, for sure. Um, but the good thing about working for Rothman is that it's such an amazing ability to. You know, if a patient goes to the ER, if they go to our office, we're able to put them with the right doctor. And so, like Dr. Bishop was saying, sometimes it doesn't mean seeing a joint replacement surgeon. Sometimes it doesn't mean seeing a traumatologist. It might be one of our non-operative sports physicians 
who can prescribe the right type of treatment. It's a non-operative, minimally invasive, if anything at all, and, uh, and get patients uh, going in the right direction. Awesome. Thank you. All right, next one. Again, this is super targeted, and I'm, I'm going to lead you a little bit, Dr. Saxena, but when it comes to joint replacements, robotics is the best option. And this is something I know you probably get a lot. I know we always hear, like, you know, people hear that and they automatically assume this is the best thing. I'm saying robotics, but we can just talk about technology in general. Like having a physician or a surgeon who uses technology is better than someone who doesn't. So I think if you don't mind. Yeah, that's that's one we do hear about a lot. You know, orthopedics has changed. I was actually just at the American Academy of Hip and Knee Surgeons meeting this weekend. And I commented to someone how much things have changed in a short period of time. You know, five years ago, really nobody was, a very small percentage of people were doing robotic joint replacement. Only one company really had a a mainstream uh, robot platform. And now actually all the major companies and even some minor companies have a robotic platform and it, it seems to be much more common. But what's interesting is that we haven't found is that there haven't been a ton of great studies showing superior outcomes using robotics. And the one thing people need to understand when we talk about robotics, you know, this isn't R2-D2 coming into the OR and doing the surgery (laughs) uh, with his computerized, right? These are basically tools that the doctors can use to achieve results that they want, whether it's an alignment result, like if they want a straight leg or, um, uh, you know, a certain balance they want of the knee or something like that. So, uh, or even for a hip, you know, a certain uh, position of one of the components. So um, these are great tools that can help surgeons to be, you know, more accurate. But interestingly, when we've studied it, you know, robotic versus what we call manual or traditional instrumentation, um, we haven't really seen better outcomes. So, No, I would say that would be a myth that robotics is better, but I do think whether it's robotics or navigation or any technological tool a surgeon uses, um, it can just help that surgeon to achieve the outcome they desire. Now, some people may always want to use these things. Some people may use them sometimes, and some people may use them never. You know, I'm in the middle. Uh, I actually did two robotic uh, partial knee replacements this morning, uh, and tomorrow I'm going to do two knee replacements with just manual instrumentation. And I think all four of those those patients will do fine. I don't think there'll be any difference. So, uh, no, definitely a myth. Um, but it is something that's becoming more common. And um, what I usually tell people is, look, just ask the surgeon, you know, whatever you do most often and whatever you're most comfortable with, just do that. And so if it means that I'm a surgeon who just does all of my knee replacements uh, robot with the robotic assistance, or if I'm a surgeon who does all of my hip replacements with the traditional instrumentation or the majority of them, then just let them do that. So that, and that's really the key, I think. And that's one thing I feel like, you know, we talk about, you know, how do you pick a doctor? And I think the number one thing you can do as a patient when you pick a doctor is just, you know, find a doctor that you trust and just let them do what they need to do. Now, unfortunately for Dr. Hawks, they kind of have to take who's there because they're sort of showing up and in, in <laughs> unfortunately for them, the, the team, the trauma team down in Advent is very trustworthy and proficient. So they should be fine if they end up in the ER and they see Dr. Hawks looking at them. Absolutely. So again, just to kind of summarize what you said. So it really is just, there's not one way, like somebody who does manual versus robotics or any other sort of technology. It really is just based on a preference type thing. Not one way is, it's just all dependent on the, on the surgeon themselves, right? Absolutely. And, and Roth is a lot of Rothman surgeons have been in, in development of a lot of these technological advances. And so we're constantly trying to study them because we are constantly trying to figure out what's the best thing for our patients. 
But I think what we've found thus far is there are different ways to skin a cat. And, you know, there are multiple ways to perform a uh, technically sound and a successful knee or hip replacement. Great. Does anyone kind of just have anything, Dr. Hawks or Dr. Bishop, just again, just generally speaking, like is in technology, like is there certain procedures or, you know, that could be used with some sort of device versus the other way? And again, does it, you know, kind of fall in the same lines as the, you know, robotics versus manual? I don't know if there's anything specific in your specific subspecialties that you can kind of relate to this a little bit. Well, we, we don't use, sorry, we don't use robotics for shoulder arthroplasty, but we do have a kind of VIP preoperative planning that we can use. So it's essentially uh, you can put the patient imaging into a computerized system and you can plan for patient specific guides uh, to be able to show how you're going to make your cuts for the surgery and the exact sizing of the implants. And they're kind of created uh, just to be specific to that patient for the anatomy of the shoulder. So that's been a pretty useful thing uh, for shoulder arthroplasty for us. However, uh, like Dr. Saxena said, you know, there's been no studies that show that using that is superior to kind of just general, uh, you know, arthroplasty and making the cuts, but it definitely is helpful for the surgeon, at least going in to have like a, a game plan. Mm-hmm. You can go over with the patient exactly where the, their cuts are going to be even before the surgery. So it's been a nice tool to have. Awesome. And for uh, for trauma, uh, advanced technology is just starting to dip a toe into some of the things that we do. And so like uh, the two other uh, surgeons mentioned, it's just getting to know the surgeon, you know, trusting him or her and uh, being able to appreciate what they do and what they do every day. So Dr. Hawk, as we're saying it in Orlando, you guys, like there'll be two guys running the OR at the same time? So... Today, um, so uh, Atif had the day off, I think, and mm-hmm. our third partner had uh, two rooms and I had uh, one room, and then we just file them in and, you know, whoever has some free uh, moments, they get, they get in the next case. And we oh, just wow. we oh, do wow. that all, all day long. And so it, uh, generally it's somewhere between 10 and 15 cases or so on a daily basis uh, oh, that wow. we'll, we'll get through. Right? I was able to get through, uh, help my guy out with about six cases and then uh, got got home around two or three uh, today. So we had a really efficient OR and and folks that just do that all day long. So it's nice to it's it's, it's nice to be able to get through a day like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's it's quite an team down there. You guys are doing awesome. Oh yeah, and Atif has really uh, gotten to be quite a a, a a very productive member of the team uh, uh, as well. And he's doing great. Good, good. He's, he puts he puts together some quality work for sure, yeah, um, and, and now a lot of it. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> All right, so I have a couple more before we kind of wrap up a little bit. So again, this one's a little bit more targeted, but going kind of back to is running is bad for your knees and can lead to arthritis. So I know we kind of touched on that a little bit with the uh, knuckle cracking, but what about running and knees and joints? How about Megan, that? am I correct? Did you guys put a paper out on something like this? Uh, yeah, actually, Daniel Ponzio, Dr. Ponzio, uh, okay. at Egg Harbor was the lead author on this, but that study specifically looked at marathon runners and tried to associate like long distance marathon running with the risk of increased osteoarthritis. And they actually found that marathon running was actually protective, um, in, in a lot of cases. So, which is totally counterintuitive. So what a lot of people think. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. Sometimes these people, a lot of that is self-selection. So these people that can continue to do these like many miles are probably going to have better knees genetically to begin with. 
Um, but I actually gave a grand round on ground rounds on this topic a year or two ago. So running itself is actually um, can be protective of your knees, um, you know, in, in moderate amounts. So, you know, the people that are running, you know, the elites running 100, 120 miles a week, that's not protective of your knees. That's overdoing it. But, you know, moderate amounts, 10 to 15 miles per week can actually be good because loading of your joint is actually good for the cartilage. Um, unless you have some kind of, you know, previous traumatic injury or pre-existing arthritis to the knee, then those are reasons you don't want to be going out and running marathons. But in general, you know, running can be good for your knees. Yeah, that was a really well done study by you guys. Um, you know, one other study that they kind of sort of alludes to that topic, Alex, is, is weight. And um, I, I was kind of researching at one point, you know, how do people develop arthritis? How do we prevent arthritis? How do we prevent knee replacement? And there were some studies I came across from England, and these were, I guess they were kind of people in like northern uh, England, and I guess mm -hmm. they're a lot, the population's pretty stagnant, so people don't move. So they're able to do very good long-term studies. And what they found was people that are even 10 or 15 pounds overweight in their 20s were three to four times more likely to get knee replacement in their 50s. So I, I do believe that there's a pretty direct correlation to weight and the mm -hmm. development of the knee arthritis. So what I would tell people is your key to not developing arthritis would be weight control. Right. And that's and a great point too. I would definitely, I mean, that's a main finding as well. Maintaining a healthy weight is, is you know, going to be the long term. That's the best thing people can do for their, for their knees. Uh, I always tell my patients, you know, an extra pound of our weight is four pounds on your knees. Uh, so it's something to think about. Right. And it's really hard for people like me because I love Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> But yeah, you, you got to keep that weight under control. Um, that's the number one thing. And I think that it's a little off topic to your question, Alex, but I think no, 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 that's, it's relevant though. That's maybe important. the people that are running are, are, are controlling their weight a little better. Yeah. Than the so maybe that's why running is also a little protective. Okay. And we're just, we're just orthopedics. So we don't really care about the heart and lungs, but those probably do a lot better uh, <laughs> when you're, when you're running and you're a little on the thinner side too. <laughs> <laughs> only care about your joints here, right? <laughs> All right. So I have um, one final kind of myth, and this one kind of, I think it's perfect for all three of you to answer. But so seeing a general orthopedic specialist is better than a fellowship trained subspecialized physician. Thoughts on that? Is that, is that a myth? Is, is that a myth that's I mean, out there? Listen, you know, there's, there's, well, it's not necessarily a myth, but, you know, there are people that will see a general orthopedist versus, you know, going to someone who kind of just hones in on one thing. So what, I mean, what would you say to them if that's the case? You know, I, I think people have a right to their opinion and right. I, I think it varies. And I think that, you know, we have some orthopod, actually one of um, our senior joint replacement surgeons actually never did a fellowship, but he's done more joint replacements than many people in the country. And he's excellent. And so I think that it's great. And I think the Rothman model is fantastic that we have, you know, people that are really focused in a couple of areas or, or one specialty. And I think that does lead to better outcomes. That being said, I think there are a lot of people out there, whether they have a fellowship or not, who practice general orthopedics. And I think that they uh, can also help take care of people and do well. And I think Again, it really sort of comes down to your, your comfort and trust level with the surgeon once you meet them, and that's really the key. And I think 
there are plenty of studies that show that if patients trust and, uh, and are comfortable with their surgeon, compliance to rec treatment recommendations, whether it's a pill, whether it's therapy, whether it's a surgery, are going to be higher. So I would say that, you know, we have a great model here where I would say over 90% of our surgeons are fellowship trained and stay within that fellowship. But that being said, I think that, you know, just because you didn't have a fellowship or even if you're doing something that may be outside of your fellowship doesn't mean you don't have talent and capability there. Very well said. Does anyone, anyone else have anything to add? I completely agree with Dr. Saicina in that there is uh, the opportunity for a generalist to, to be useful as well as a subspecialist. Uh, I think that I really like being a part of the Rothman model uh, because you are going to be sent to the surgeon that does that particular procedure all the time. And, uh, and like he said, I think that that leads to overall better outcomes. The, the very fine point of, of something that Dr. Saxena said is that there's a, a senior surgeon that does a, a really great job of, of joint replacement surgeries. I'm, I'm sure that he or she, even though they, they are not fellowship trained, they do that on a daily basis. Uh -huh. And I think that if you have somebody that maybe does one or two procedures once or twice a month, I think that maybe that would be harder for me to buy into as, uh, as if they, they did many of the same procedures every month. I, I completely agree with Dr. Hawks and Dr. Saxena. The more you do of the certain cases, you know, the better you're going to be and your outcomes are going to be better. Um, and not only, you know, with people being hyper-specialized and fellowship trained in, in certain subspecialties, it's not just performing the surgical procedures. We're also performing research um, in these uh, areas as well. So that, that really helps kind of um, fuel our patient care too. Awesome. All very well said. So yeah, so just uh, to wrap up, kind of give you all the opportunity, do you have any last words or is there any myth that we did not talk about that maybe grinds your gears <laughs> a little bit or that you, you know, again, that I didn't, that we didn't kind of talk about here or that again, that you maybe you hear, feel free to throw it out there now. One thought that I have is that uh, I've made it through my first podcast and I'm so proud of myself. Great. Did Dr. Ahmed give you any pointers? He did. He did. He's, he's a, he's a great speaker. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the second thing that I'll say is that uh, sometimes it's hard to, to be able to, explain to, to patients that uh, have been treated with surgery for a broken bone uh, that they are not healed the same day that they are fixed. <laughs> that uh, we do a, a really good job of realigning the bone and, and putting it in a place where their bodies can do what they do best and to heal in the mm -hmm. appropriate position. But it takes uh, a lot of work uh, through the therapist, through their own self-directed uh, care and to uh, being a little gentle on that fracture before it heals, before we can give them the seal of approval. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I didn't even think about that. Because I think you're right. Like, you know, seeing people, just their frustrations, and they think you're right. Like, we get the surgery. And maybe it's a little bit different with you, um, Dr. Saxena, but you're like some of your typical cases, Dr. Hawks, I'm sure, you know, great they, surgery. I'm going to be walking or doing whatever back to normal and just not really understanding or knowing that, you know, it, it is a long process. So that's, that's a great one. So thanks for bringing no, that to the table. It's the same for us too. You know, Dr. Hawks totally agree with you. It's, it's a process and, you know, you can come to our office and we can get you better, no doubt, but it's probably not going to happen on your first visit. And if you need therapy, it's going to take time and, and effort on the patient's part. 
Um, if you need surgery, it's going to take uh, time and patience. So yeah, these things are always a process. You know, we have outcome scores that show that people continue to improve after hip and knee replacement for up to one or even two years. So when mm. you call and feel frustrated that you're not better two weeks after surgery, yeah, you got about, uh, I don't know, 102 weeks well, left. 22 you know, months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your maximum improvement. That being said, you know, we all understand that, you know, these aches, ailments, whether it's a broken bone, whether it's arthritis, whether it's a torn rotator cuff, you know, these are limiting patient's function and it's frustrating and it's just really tough to get through, but um, it's always a process, just like Dr. Hawk said. Awesome. Thank you. I have one final myth that yes, I can please. contribute to. This would be for people that are potentially interested in pursuing orthopedics, that you need to be incredibly strong or a jock to, to be able to do ortho. Not entirely true. You definitely have to have some strength to do orthopedics, but a lot of it is more technique rather than brute strength. And it's having a good team that surrounds you. So I would refute that as a uh, requirement to go into orthopedics. So for any women or, you know, other potential candidates that that would be dissuading them from going into orthopedics, that's definitely a myth. You know, that's a really important one. We actually had a whole symposium uh, this weekend at the hip and knee meeting about diversity. And, um, you know, part of that is, you know, minorities uh, participating in orthopedics and, and becoming orthopedic attendings. And, and the other part would be females. And so that myth is that it's a bunch of guys in a call room. Um, <laughs> it is not true. And, you know, I, I'm really proud of the Rothman residency program here in, in Philadelphia um, because we've had a lot of really strong female orthopedists come out in the last five or six years. And um, it, it's just, it, it's a great thing. And so, um, you know, it's good to have diversity out there, whether, you know, it's based on race or ethnicity or sex, um, just because then, the more people are going to feel comfortable seeing mm -hmm. sometimes people like to see somebody that's kind of like them. And so right. more people will seek care and uh, more people will, will get better. And so Megan, I think that's a, just a great point and totally agree with it. Yes. Thank you. I, the, leaving a little something, I know we are obviously, this is very patient focused, but for the uh, for future surgeons, uh, you know, hopefully at Rothman, uh, thank you for that, that one. Um, but I would, like to thank all three of you, Dr. Saxena, Dr. Hawks, and Dr. Bishop for joining me today. This was great. I mean, I selfishly, I kind of did this stuff for myself too, because it's again, <laughs> specifically the one, the knuckle cracking, the knees, you know, popping, all that fun stuff. But uh, this is a great episode. I know people will really appreciate it. Um, I, again, three of our finest surgeons, um, you know, in Florida, New York, um, as well as in South Jersey, Philadelphia, that area. So again, thank you all for joining me today. Thank you so much. Great Thank to be on, guys. I'd stay longer, but I have some uh, knuckles to pop. <laughs> <laughs>